In C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, in one of the chapters, is making the case for Jesus being fully God and fully man, the the God-man, based on who Jesus claimed to be in the Scriptures and what He did, based on His words and His acts. So C.S. Lewis said in that book, Mere Christianity, this, quotes, Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. And this makes sense only if He really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. And so C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I am trying here, in in his writing, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. C.S. Lewis says, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him, his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quotes. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. We continue our exposition of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11, please find verse 14. The great theme of this section, in Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 23, is the identity of Jesus and our association with Jesus. The identity of Jesus and our association with Him. Please find verse 14 of Luke chapter 11. The text of Scripture says in Luke chapter 11, verse 14, And He was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. 
So Jesus, after teaching his disciples about the nature of prayer, finds a man who could not speak for years likely and effortlessly with a word frees this man, expelling this demon that was causing muteness, setting him free. And this man spoke, likely praise and thanksgiving to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for he had been set free. And no one, not one person, not man, woman, or child, not Pharisee, not scribe, not disciple, not one of the 70, not one of the crowd, no one disputed that the miracle occurred. Not one. You could not. No one debated that this miracle happened. However, the Pharisees and scribes who were hardened in their opposition to Jesus Christ decided to put Jesus in the category, as C.S. Lewis would call it, the devil of hell. A lunatic from hell itself. He's not a liar, we just saw it. They blaspheme the Son of God. They blaspheme the work of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. Some of the crowd, right, there's the crowd that always thinks it's pretty neat to see these things. I mean, it happened. And they were amazed. Some, in verse 16, and they were, I don't think they had good hearts in this, were asking Jesus for a sign from heaven. They weren't willing to call him the devil, but they were asking for a sign from heaven. Another one. And Jesus will address this skeptical, sign-seeking response to him later on in verse 29 of this chapter. We'll get to that. But there were some that said he was casting out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. This is the absolute nastiest label they could give anyone in that day. The worst blasphemy that they could conceive in their heart and minds against Jesus. This name, which it's debatable whether it's the Lord of the Dung or the Lord of the Flies, or something really bad like that. It was a, a name that had been corrupted by the Pharisees' times, a corruption of, of Baal Zebul, the chief god of the Philistine city of Ekron of the Canaanites, way back in Elijah's time. Fire from heaven and all that kind of stuff. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1. But by this time, hundreds of years later, this name referred kind of the ultimate pinnacle prince of demons behind this false god. 
And it, re, and it referred then to Satan himself, the devil of old. And so they're saying with a really nasty word that you are of the devil. It's not the Holy Spirit of God which, by which you work. It's not the power of God. It's the devil's power. Possess your, perhaps you are possessed by Satan. So the Pharisees and the scribes admit the demon was gone. No one ever debated, debated the miracle. They couldn't call him a liar. They weren't for sure going to bend the knee to him as Lord. So they had one option. You are a lunatic from the pit of hell, filled with the devil himself. And in some sense, I get it. And in some sense, I'm glad they picked one of the options. A lot of people in here and maybe listening think they don't even need to choose. I'm just going to stay neutral until I get good and ready. They at least picked one of the categories. And frankly, they, had, they were fairly good theologians. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. And no one can forgive sins except God alone. So, they blasphemed God in the flesh. What is Jesus' response to this blasphemy? Well, James and John, a couple chapters earlier, wanted to, when Jesus was disrespected, not nearly like this, wanted to call fire from heaven down. Just like they did in the old days with Ekron's God. But, here, he doesn't call fire down from heaven. He could have, in mercy and with patience, Jesus addresses those who scornfully blaspheme him. What does he say? Let's read the rest of our text. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan, this is Jesus answering these blasphemers, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, Jesus is still talking, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Listen to his conclusion. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. This is the word of the Lord.
Jesus makes it clear, and I think he's pleading with everyone who would hear his voice. There's only two options. You're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. There is no middle way. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus Christ. Pick an option. Either you gather with Jesus, either you gather with Jesus, or you scatter from Jesus. Maybe you, maybe you think he is in the category of liar, and this book is a joke. Maybe you think he's a demon-powered lunatic from the pit of hell himself. But, if Jesus is Lord over all, if Jesus is Lord over all, you're either all in or you're out. If he is Lord over all, you must be all in. This is the word of Christ. You can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Why would you not be with him? Be gathering with him? Why would you scatter from him? I mean... In that culture, in that day, here's a man in bondage. Really, they didn't have, you know, phones and text messaging and social media and they didn't write to each other very easily. I mean, speaking was the everyday occurrence of communication. It was life itself. And this man was in bondage. His tongue is free to praise the Lord. And they saw it with their own eyes. And they rejected him and blasphemed him as the Lord of the flies, prince of demons. Why? Why will you not come to him? Why are you living for yourself? Why do you think that you can be neutral? Why are you not all in? It's the same question. The text gives two reasons why they blasphemed him that day. Two reasons, two overarching reasons. Number one, in verses 17 through 20, because they are in denial. Number one, reasons that they blasphemed him and they weren't going to bend the knee as Lord. Number one, they were in denial of, of two things, of two aspects or two realms. They were in denial of reason. They were in denial of reason, of logic. Verse 17, but he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan, Jesus 
says, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. For over two and a half years, Jesus Christ has been doing some of the most astounding miracles, freeing people from disease and freeing people from demons. Two and a half years. A man covered with leprosy came up to him and laid his hands on him. He didn't get leprosy. Instead, the leprosy vanished from this man. There was a paralytic that was let down through the roof. And at the end of chapter 6, Jesus healed their diseases. All who were coming to hear Him He healed every one of their diseases. People troubled with unclean spirits at the end of chapter 6. They were all being cured and power, the text says, was coming out of Him. And He was healing some of them. He was healing everyone. And in the next chapter, a centurion's servant is healed. Jesus is going to come to Him because, you know, they kind of need me to, you know, be there. Oh, he doesn't really need to be there. He can speak the word from a distance. And the centurion knows that. He can't believe the faith of this Gentile. And he speaks the word from a distance and this man is healed. And then, same chapter, he raises the dead. A boy, an only son. Ring a bell? A widow from the little town of Nain. And then he stills the sea while he's sleeping in the boat. He gets up, stills the sea on his way to land and be assaulted by a man possessed by a legion of demons whose name was Legion. He casts out all of them. Even the demons ask for permission. Please don't send us into the abyss. We know you have the power to do so. And he puts them into the pigs the pigs, because they got to destroy. The pigs run themselves into the sea. And this man sits at the feet of Jesus like Mary. Listens to His Word. And He makes this man, freeing him from a legion of demons, He makes him and appoints him an evangelist to the Gentiles across the Sea of Galilee. The precursor for the birth of the church. Then... He gets on the other side of the shore, starts preaching. They're all hungry. He feeds from a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. He creates food and feeds 5,000 people. And then he's training leaders this whole time. So he sends out 70. And they, in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, preach the Word of God, cast out demons, heal the sick, All of this is in fulfillment for all of the scriptures that this is the promised messianic king sent here from God on a rescue mission. The end has come. He's here. Your king is here in fulfillment of your scriptures. Israel, your king has come. Your redeemer has come. Once again, here he is casting out a demon of a man who's been made mute. And the leaders of Israel, the best of the best, the Pharisees that represent the people, instead of bending the knee to their their king, 
say you are doing this by the power of the devil. Now, maybe you can do one so-called exorcism that's a little bit questionable with some gyrations. It's not really a pattern. It's a cheap magic trick. It doesn't really stick or partially sticks. Perhaps it would be legitimate to say that you are empowered by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. But for two and a half years, they have seen these things. It's not simply possible that Jesus was working with the power of the evil one. It was not rational. It defied logic. As one has said, Satan is not a moron. The prince of demons, as it is implied in this text, wants to possess men and bring disease and bondage and slavery to sin and pain and shame and brokenness and disappointment and deprivation. Here's what he wants. Sexual deviancy and violence and bloodshed and death. That's what he wants. And that's what he gets. But Jesus set people free from disease. He rid them of demons. He placed them in the right man. He put clothes back on them. And they believed in Him. And He made evangelists out of them. And He proclaimed them. And Jesus calls them out in the most insanely gentle way, when you think about it, of their logical fallacy. Satan cannot possibly be behind my ministry because my ministry is in exact opposition to his plans. Everything I do destroys the works of the devil. You've seen it. Everything I do assaults his kingdom. How could I be working by his power? That would be a kingdom divided against itself. For two and a half years, Satan would be laying waste to his own kingdom. Or his house would be divided and his house would crumble. He would have no house. If I were working by the power of Satan. Jesus says, look, I have been forgiving people of sins, putting them in their, like, uh, in their right mind. It would be logically impossible, as one has said, for their quotes to be an evil league between the Savior and Satan to exist. But, the Pharisees were willing to break the law of reason and the law of non-contradiction. I can't be with Satan and against Satan at the same time. They're willing to violate all laws of logic. You know why? Because they hated God and they loved their money and they loved pets on the backs and they were jealous of Him. That's why. That's why. That's why. They hated Him. And so they were willing to violate rules of logic and common sense, breaking the laws of simple non-contradiction and rules of common sense. Got to find something. There's errors in the Bible. Show me one. If you find an error in the Bible without a reasonable answer, it would make front-page news and it would be destroy the whole thing. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no more historical event that is more unquestionable by the laws of logic and reason than the resurrection of Jesus Christ and people won't have it. Because that would mean something in their own personal life. That they must bend the knee to this one and submit to him and they will not. 
There's no other logical explanation of how Christianity is spread by a group of men and women that are willing to be hung upside down and die. They would not die for someone they knew was dead and alive. And 500 independent witnesses that day verified the resurrection. But for those who do not believe and don't want to believe, there's a refusal to be convinced by plain arguments. That's the power of sin. That's the power of prejudice. That's the course, that's the whole... Guys, listen, that is the mindset of our, of our world right now. That is the, the nature of the deception. I mean, think about the cultural opposition against the truth of God right now in our country about the truth of who we are. Thinking and reason and the law of non-contradiction has been thrown out the window. I mean, think about it. Truth is relative. What do you think that is? Wiggle room. That's what it is. People are free to say things that don't make sense. Um, when it exits the birth canal and makes a noise, it's a baby. Well, two minutes later, it's not. And, and we're supposed to just believe it. The law of, it breaks every rule of logic, every rule of reasonable human behavior and reasonable thinking. But if that's a baby four minutes earlier, they must bow the knee and they will not. The Pharisees are in denial of the truth. They know, and frankly we all know, as Romans 1 says, the knowledge of God is evident knowledge of God within us and without us. The creation order itself shows us the invisible attributes of God, His eternal power, His divine nature. It's been clearly seen. We are all without excuse, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Is this happening here and what it looks like is a denial of basic reason and basic logic. And Jesus, what a humble person, doesn't call fire from heaven, shows them that they're being illogical. Secondly, they deny not just reason, they deny reality. They deny evidence. Verse 19, listen to this. This one's a hard verse, so put your thinking cap on. Don't raise your hand during the sermon. We'll ask questions afterwards. Here we go. Verse 19. And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. So here's what Jesus is doing. In this verse, he's going to say, okay, let me move over to the evidence side of things. You're denying the evidence. Jesus is saying, hold on a second. Let's say, and the Greek construction, for the sake of argument, let's say I am casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. By whom do your sons cast out demons? Then. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. In those days, there were Jewish exorcists. Ask Josephus the historian. He's got some interesting accounts. 
And the Jewish exorcists, the sons, the Jews, the sons of the Pharisees, right? Some of them were rabbis. They were loosely connected and sometimes strongly connected to the religious system, these Jewish exorcists. Somehow, under some of the authority of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees for their behavior. Well, these so-called exorcists, I mean, you should see the incantations and the mysticism and the shenanigans and the, and the gyrations and the incompleteness and the patheticness and the, it just, the sham exorcisms that was going on that day by the Jewish exorcists. If you want an example, Paul, the Apostle Paul recorded this in Acts chapter 19. If you're fast, you can turn there. I'll give you one example of the Jewish exorcist. Here's what it was like. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. God was performing, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, verse 13, who went from place to place, (laughs) attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, seven sons of one Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I mean, if it wasn't sad, it'd be funny. It is funny. I recognize Jesus, the demon says, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And, oh, this is, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them, and overpowered them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And Jesus is arguing along the lines of evidence. No one denied the last two and a half years. And he's saying, wait a minute here. Are you telling me something? The Jewish exorcisms, your sons, and their exorcisms are incomplete, inconsistent, strange, weird, ritualistic, long-term, so different than what I do when I speak the word, give them freedom, and they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our traveling evangelists, and they do it right away. I give freedom, I give wholeness, I set them free. Are you telling me if what I am doing right now is the power of the devil, what in the world are they, what power are they working from? If mine, the de- are, you, are you calling the devil more powerful than God? If they're working by the power of God and theirs are a sham? You see what he's doing? He's calling them out. It's reality. They're denying basic reality. The evidence. I'm wor- if I'm working by the devil's power and I have this kind of success, by what power are the Jewish exorcists working? They can't get the job done. God? Are you saying God's, uh, the devil's more powerful than God? He's calling them out. Because they're denying reason and they're de- denying what? Reality, the evidence. I mean, if I'm doing Satan's work, shouldn't be suspicious of that kind of work?
They, those Jewish exorcists, are judging your whole thing. Their activity is judging it. They'll be your judges. Look to them. Think about it. Nothing has changed since then, today. We're in a culture that refuses to admit reality. Basic reality. Boy, girl. Marriage. Basic reality. Refuse to admit it. I mean, we've gotten to the point where if you say you're seven feet tall and you're 5'2", and I say that you're not seven feet tall, I'm the idiot. <laughs> Denying reality. Denying the evidence. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is astounding. Okay? The evidence that there is a designer in the created order of this world is admitted even by atheistic scientists. Now, they're going to play the alien card and they'll do whatever they can to get out from, from the thumb of a personal God. But they're starting to say this evolution thing, it don't work. Read them. Evolution is even more bankrupt than some of the sham Jewish exorcists. There is no evidence for intermediate forms or stages between so-called macroevolution jumps. There's no evidence in the fossil record. There's no missing links that are established. There should be billions of them, and I can't find one that is not actually proven. Nor can I find a contradiction in the scriptures, and that's not proven, or we'd be done. The manuscript evidence, it's unbelievable God preserving his word. The archaeological evidence continues to prove the word of God over and over again. It's got to be a nightmare for historians. The predictive prophecy of 700,000 years and the things that were predicted that have come past, it's statistically impossible, but people will deny the evidence and deny reality. Science itself tells us that the laws of thermodynamics, that, that things progressively decline, including genetic information, and yet evolution demands the opposite, increased genetic information. It's against the evidence, against science. This is the beauty, the symmetry, the glory of creation, the irreducible complexity of a single cell, that if one component is taken away in the process of macroevolution, it doesn't even work, and the whole world implodes. And yet we deny the basic evidence. Why? Because we like our money, we like our pleasure, and we like our life, and we're not going to be put under the thumb of a personal God, especially the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, people don't hate any other gods, which there's 600 million gods. How could you say there's one? Who is the one true God? I'll tell you who the one true God is, the one you hate. People are just fine with this. Just don't ask questions. I will not have a God to hold me accountable. And let me say something for professing Christians in this room. You cannot say, I work by the power of Satan, and I don't work by the power of Satan. We don't have a kind of Christianity in the Bible that says, I can have Jesus and live my own life. Or, right? That I can take him as Savior and not as Lord. 
Or I work by the power of Christ and not by the power of Christ. It's a not. You're denying the evidence. It's a, it's not, it's a, you're violating the laws of, contra, of non-contradiction. But, verse 20, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, you get the illusion when you hear the finger of God. It makes you think of something. We read it in the scripture reading. You got it. It's an allusion back to the act which confirms our interpretation. Listen carefully. This is wonderful. There's an allusion back to the exodus out of Egypt recorded in Exodus chapter 8. So the magicians, right? Pharaoh's magicians, by the way, the magicians, they're pagan, Gentile magicians. And they kind of do their scam magic, right? Like the Jewish exorcists of the day, you know, kind of looks like maybe they're getting the job done. And they're able to produce a little snake with their snake with their stick, and they're able to do some pretty amazing things with some pretty good sleight of hand magic stuff. But they get to the gnats and they say, "Uh oh." <laughs> and I read in verse eighteen, the magicians try with their secret arts to bring forth the gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast, and the magician said to Pharaoh, "This is." The finger of God. So pagan magicians, they can do a few things, but they're baffled pretty early on. And they say, look, pretty good logic. Pretty good reality check. This is the finger of pagan magicians. Recognize the finger of God while the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, people of God point their finger at their Messiah and say you work by Beelzebul the prince of flies the power of the devil worse than pagan magicians like the Jewish exorcists these pagan magicians from the book of Exodus became the judges of the leaders of Israel Thousands of years later. If, you, if what Jesus says you've been seeing for the last two and a half years, as I assault the kingdom of darkness as the finger of God, this is not evidence. No, this is not evidence of Satan reigning. This is evidence that the king has come. The kingdom has broken in. That the, that the kingdom is being offered. Right here, it's at hand. It's upon you. But they would not have their king. They did not believe. They denied reason. They denied logic. They denied reality. They denied evidence. Why would they not receive their king? Why will you hear a sermon like this and go home and ignore it? Second reason, they chose to reject him. First, because they're in denial. Second, get ready, put your seatbelt on. Verses 21 and 22, because they are in bondage. First, they're in denial. Second, because they're in bondage. 
Jesus is really doing a parable, giving an illustration as he tells this story um, that has spiritual realities behind it. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Okay? So the strong man is Satan. And Satan has his castle here, his house, and he's got his possessions, which are people. He's got his possessions, which are people, inside of the castle. And it's very scary. This is Satan's domain, Satan's kingdom. Possessions are people. They're rejecting Jesus. They're in denial. And the reason that they're in denial is that they're in Satan's possession inside his house, guarded by an armed strong man. And there's really no touching these people. There's no amount of there's no amount of reason that's going to free them. To argue them out of Satan's castle, they'll just deny it. They're in a devil-induced state of denial. There's no amount of evidence that is going to be demonstrated to them by which they'll be convinced they'll just deny it. Satan is stronger than their reason. Satan is stronger than the evidence. And that's why the text says, they're at peace. Thank you very much. They're at rest. They're undisturbed. His possessions are undisturbed. You, you, You get it, right? They're lulled to sleep, just drugged by their entertainment drugged by the next thing, drugged by this, drugged by that, and drug into eternity. They're at peace. They're undisturbed. They're not trying to get out. God's sovereign. I'm trying to get out. No. That's not how it works. They're in bondage. And they're content to be in bondage to Satan so they can serve the world system, which has temporary fun pleasures, very temporary pleasures of sin that spring forth from the flesh. Just like the Pharisees were jealous, they were greedy, they were power hungry, and perfectly content to, to have those things and stay right there. And this is the reason that people will not bend the knee to the Lordship of Christ. They are in bondage to the power of Satan, and they are living at peace right there. I am fine. Thank you very much. Close your mouth. Leave me alone. And that's why I love this passage so much. Are you ready? Here we go. The good part. It's a false peace. And that's where we come to the two, my two favorite words in the Scriptures. Are you ready? But God. But God. But. I love it. Verse 22. But. <laughs> When someone's stronger than he. Who's that? You? You get yourself out of jail? You save yourself? When someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus and his power is stronger than Satan. Jesus is the someone stronger here. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, 
goes on the offensive. You remember the one that the Father will give to those who ask Him? And so our prayers are yes and amen. The powerful one, the Spirit of God goes on the offensive. He overpowers the bondage imposed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's a mighty armor. It's spiritual death itself. It's being dead in trespasses and sins. And the devil relies on this. He knows the gospel better than all of us it would seem. That there's not a man, woman, and child in this room who can free himself by his or her own power. He knows that the strong man must free him. Satan has met his match in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bend the knee. Stop playing games. The strong man has freed you. The people who are the plunder of the power of darkness are now transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the finger of God. If you think the finger of God is not the Holy Spirit, compare the cross-reference in Matthew to this passage. So just like the magicians admitted that the finger of God was on the move, so also the power of darkness cannot overcome. The power of darkness cannot overcome the effectual, regenerating call of God unto salvation. Cannot. You see, the finger of God was on the move. In Moses' day, in, in Egypt, in plague after plague, the finger and power of God was on the move for a people who were in bondage to slavery in Egypt until the final plague when the death angel would, would come and the death angel would strike down the firstborn. But if Israel would listen to the word of God and sacrifice an unblemished lamb and apply the blood to the lentil of the doorpost, the death angel would pass over and they would live. And in that life and that distinction between the, the finger of God and the sham power of the Egyptians, the people of God were released and they plundered the Egyptians. Just like Jesus, the strong man, plunders those who hold people in the power of darkness their whole lives. And so it is today in the same way in bondage to sin and death of the power of God through the blood of Christ. If the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit is applied to your heart, the kingdom of Satan is plundered soul by soul. The spiritual kingdom is built, having come near in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the finger of God and the person of Christ is here rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness. It's war language. It's war imagery. And Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, quoting Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, speaking of Christ, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Just as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. All because one stronger than the strong man has come the Spirit of God, God's great gift and answer to our prayers, the Spirit who applies the work of Christ to our hearts and the, because of the eternal plan of the Father. The work of Christ, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, 
He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives so that we can come to John and amen the Apostle John who writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, to release us from the bondage of sin and death at great cost to himself. And so stop playing games. Are you settled in Satan's castle in bondage or are you set free by the Son of Man in a great rescue? Which one is it? There's no middle ground. He's pulled you out of darkness. He's gathered you into his kingdom. He's called you into the kingdom of Christ. And, like, and you are logically either building or destroying. Listen, you right now, Christian, are logically either building or destroying Satan's kingdom. You are either gathering with Christ or scattering from Christ. There is not a neutrality. If you are neutral and buying your time, you are scattering from Him. You're in danger. According to the Scripture. If you will play with the darkness, if you want to go back into the bondage and stay in the darkness, you're contributing to satanic scattering away from the power of the kingdom of Christ. You're either gathering with Christ. I love that metaphor. We're gatherers. We're gathering with Christ. We're gathering of people. That's what you're all about. That's the plan of God. That's by which we measure God. We're gathering with Christ or we're scattering from Him. One or the other. Who are you going to follow? That's where Jesus goes. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no Switzerland in this spiritual war. Pick a side. Jeremiah 6.16 The crossroads. There's only two roads. Thus says the Lord, stand by the way, stand by the crossroads, and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not indeed intend to.